have been reading to our children since they were born. Since they were, before they were born, actually, before they were old enough to understand what words meant. We've been reading to them even when they started teething and chewed on the books that we read. Uh, we read to them even when they fell asleep in our arms as we read. Um, we read Goodnight Moon and The Hungry Caterpillar and Where the Wild Things Are, and we read lots and lots of Dr. Seuss. And so our kids both love stories. Um, and I wish I could take credit for that, as if all the bedtime reading had, had something to do with their love for stories, but I think that's just human nature. That's who we are, isn't it? We love stories. Uh, there are stories in our hearts long before we have words to express them. And this year, our five-year-old, Drew, finally became old enough uh, to start us reading to him what you call chapter books. And that means that unlike all the other books he's ever read, the story doesn't end the same night that you start it. We usually read a couple of chapters to him, and then we stick a bookmark in the story, and we say, well, we'll continue this tomorrow night. It's his first experience with those thrilling and frustrating words, to be continued. And it's a moment you would think we would relish as parents. Suddenly, the door is open for some bigger stories and ones that we remember as children, ones that we treasure from our own childhoods. But someone, I think it was probably his grandmother, my mother, introduced him to a series called The Magic Treehouse Books. And since then, we've hardly read anything else. We keep checking out a Magic Treehouse book one after another from the library. Thank you, Jessamine County Public Library. And when we finish one, he just wants to start another one. And if you're not familiar with the Magic Treehouse, let me enlighten you. It's a story of a brother and a sister, bookish Jack and animal-loving Annie, who go on an adventure. And the basic plot line, the only plot line that these books have, is that the two of them go through their magic treehouse on a journey to a far off time or place. They learn some things, they find danger, they escape from danger, and they return home um, enlightened from their travels. Does it sound like a good story? It would be, but it's the only story in every book, every single time. Now we've read things like Dinosaurs Before Dark, Civil War on Sunday, Tonight on the Titanic, Pirates Past Noon. That's just a small sampling. So far, we have made it through 21 of these books. 21 versions, two chapters at a time of the same plot line. And I looked it up online this week, only to discover, to my horror, there are 52 books so far. <laughs> we are not even halfway there. Pray for us. There may be 52 books in this series, but there is only one plot between them. Uh, the novelist John Gardner once said that there are really only two plots to all of the stories in all of the world. The first, he said, is this, a stranger came to town. And the second, someone went on a journey all the stories in all the world, and that's the only story that's ever told, those two. A stranger came to town, and someone went on a journey. Two plots to all the stories. And the gospel writer Luke, ambitious as Luke usually is, decides not to pick between the two possible plots. 
for the message he offers us today. Instead, he takes on a story that has both plots at once. Now on the same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. There you go, from Jerusalem to Emmaus, there's your first plot. Someone went on a journey on the same day. On the same day as what? Well, the plot thickens. It's the very same day as the resurrection, the most significant event to impact human history, and yet there are people nearby, clueless that it has even occurred. There are even disciples of Jesus, oblivious to the power of this event that's taken place. To them, it's a rumor, wishful thinking. We had hoped, they say. Still today, there are disciples of Jesus walking around blind to the power of the resurrection. And for these two, just to confirm how clueless they are, Luke tells us that Jesus himself comes and walks with them, walks beside them, and they have no idea that it's him. And there you go, the second plot. A stranger comes to town. That's what they call him, the stranger. And when that stranger himself seems clueless about the events surrounding the depth of the grief they're processing that day, one of them asks him, are you, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place in these days? They think Jesus is the clueless one. I don't know if you've ever been in a place where a single event is so much in the forefront of your mind and your life that it just blows your mind that there are people around you who aren't experiencing it the same way. I was remembering 10 years ago this year on the morning of March 12th in Houston, Texas, driving from my home in Houston to the church where Jim and I were getting married that afternoon. We had been engaged for 10 months, and there had been so many preparations and purchases and wedding showers and parties, and here in this one week, all of our family and friends had descended upon us. All we talked about was the wedding. All we thought about was the wedding. We were all focused on this one big moment, and no one more focused than I. Um, the morning of the wedding was so beautiful. In Houston, there are probably three days a year that are not hot and humid or cold and rainy. And this, we got one of the three days. I remember driving with my friends in the car from uh, my home to the church and, and worrying that we would forget something that we needed. I was going over all the details in my mind of what we should have with us. And as we turned the corner onto the street, I saw the church for the first time that day. And it was a beautiful day. And I had all these deep thoughts going on in my head about how I would be going in single and coming out married, how my name would change and my life would change all in that one day. And as we turned that corner, I saw something else. I saw a stranger jogging right in front of the church sign where I thought we might stop and take a picture. But this stranger was in the frame jogging past the church sign, out for a morning run on a beautiful day, and this thought popped into my head. How can you be jogging today? Do you not know what is going on today? 
I mean, right inside that building, how do you just jog casually past? I actually thought that. Just for a moment. And then I had a good laugh at myself. It, it was the events dominating my life and my thoughts that seemed that they were the only events in the world that day. I couldn't imagine that everyone else wasn't totally wrapped up in what I was wrapped up in. And that seems silly, I know, but there have been other times in my life, and probably yours, where emotions ran so deep on the other end of the spectrum, where my life has been so overwhelmed by events of grief and sadness, that sitting down in a restaurant and hearing someone laugh across the room, I thought to myself, how can you laugh today? Do you not know the events that have taken place, the grief and sadness that is overwhelming the world? How are you not so wrapped up in this grief as I am? Don't you know what the world is going through today? There are points in life that seem so enveloped by grief that it's almost inconceivable that someone else isn't swallowed up in that grief with us. That is where these two disciples found themselves that day, swallowed in grief. They can't believe there is any stranger in the vicinity that doesn't know how awful these last few days have been. How their friend Jesus was betrayed, arrested, tortured, beaten, murdered in front of their eyes. And so they begin to tell him. They begin to tell the stranger their story. Only as we know, this is no stranger. And he is not a stranger to the pain or the suffering that they've witnessed. So they begin describing the crucifixion to the crucified one. They begin recounting the wounds to the wounded one. They begin to tell the rumors of the resurrection to the resurrected Jesus. And I can almost see Jesus listening and carefully nodding at each part of their story. And in his head, I wonder if he was saying, I was there. I was there. I was there. And I'm thinking about our own prayers in light of this story. When we run to Jesus with our pain and suffering and struggle, our stories of hurt, and sometimes we act as if he is a stranger to our grief when he was there, and he hurt too. These clueless disciples, they tell him their story as if he's a stranger to pain. They tell it from their perspective, from their tiny, myopic part of the narrative, and then what does Jesus do in return? He tells them a bigger story. He turns and recounts to them a bigger picture. They have given him a narrative. And he responds with the meta-narrative. I can almost see Jesus asking them, are you done? Are you done yet? Are you done telling me about your grief and your pain? About how painful the crucifixion was for you? How heavy the burden of a Friday that was anything but good. 
how heavy the crown of thorns felt to you, how weighty the cross? Are you done telling me how you had hoped? You had hoped. You had hoped that things would turn out differently, don't you think I hoped? Are you done telling me your story? Jesus might have asked. Good. Now let me tell you the story. And beginning, Luke tells us, with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them why the Messiah had to come and die and rise again. He opened for them a story which he wrote and directed and played the main part in. The bigger story, the bigger narrative, the plot of all plots, the journey of all journeys. And this, I think, is one reason why prayer and the reading of scripture go together. Not because it's a nice little package for your personal devotional time, a little dose of scripture, a nice little prayer to close and you're all done. Not because they come together on the order of worship in a worship service. The reading of God's word and our prayers go together because our lives and our requests and our pain are so dear to him, so close to his heart. He treasures the time we spend with him, telling him our struggles and our fears and our dreams and hopes, to every one of which he can say, I was there. I was there. But he also wants to open a bigger story for us. He wants to open the word to us and make our story bigger than we've seen it before. He wants to show us our little story's place in the big story he has set out from the beginning of time. And finally, on this road, they've walked for so long, they actually arrive at a village called Emmaus. And here we come to the part of the story that we preachers hate to tell, that he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread, that their hearts might have burned while he talked, but it wasn't the talking that did it. It wasn't the sermon that won them. He talked all the way to Emmaus, and their eyes were still not open. He covered Moses and all the prophets. That's a lot of prophets, my friends. And their eyes were still not open. But then they got to the table, and it was at the table, in table fellowship, when they were fed. He was made known to them not in his manuscript, not in his enunciation, his illustrations, not by how articulate his message was. None of his words jogged their memory or recognition, but when he lifted the bread, when he blessed it and broke it, that's when they knew that it was true and that Jesus was alive and standing there with them. Now, the story he told them played an important part leading to that table, of course. That story, we're told, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. And there was a time when I read this story that I wondered, why start with Moses? Pre-seminary, of course. I wondered, why begin with the story of Exodus or even start with the baby and the bulrushes? But I've been enlightened a little bit since then. Actually, he was walking them through the entirety of the Hebrew scriptures, beginning with the books of Moses, 
And that means instead of beginning with a baby in the bulrushes or the exodus, he began with a story in a garden, a story of beauty and creation, provision, intimate relationship, wholeness, and shalom, and then the plot twist, the tree, the fruit, the temptation, the serpent. Oh, the serpent. In other words, a stranger came to town. That serpent, the stranger who offers a meal to two companions in a garden, and they take, and they eat, and their eyes are opened. Did you catch it? Their eyes are opened when they ate what a stranger offered them. The same words from the Emmaus table where two disciples took and ate and had their eyes open. N.T. Wright says that the eating of the fruit in Eden is the Bible's first description of a meal. But it's a meal that leads to bondage and decay. Then he says the meal eaten in Emmaus describes the first meal of the new creation. A meal that leads to life and to freedom. And if you've never noticed those parallels or opposites between Genesis 3 and Luke 24, let me assure you, we're just not just grasping at straws to find similarities there. They took and ate, and when their eyes were opened, they realized, they recognized. It's the same word there. They realized they were naked. They recognized Jesus. In one case, their eyes were opened, and they looked inward, only to focus on themselves. They saw their vulnerability, their nakedness, their shame, And it blinded them to anyone around them but themselves. It took them deep into grief. It was an eye-opening blindness. But the meal that Luke recounts for us, their eyes are open to the resurrected hope of the world standing before them. They recognize that the stranger is Jesus himself. And this eye-opening actually takes their eyes off of their grief when they see that Jesus has been there with them all the time. It's a Christ-centered eye-opening The eating of the fruit caused them to hide from God. The eating of the bread caused God to be revealed. The eating of the fruit drove them apart from each other and paradise. The eating of the bread drove them back onto the road to head for Jerusalem, to be in community in the company of the disciples again. Friends, we are a hungry people. Seems like we will take whatever a stranger will hand to us. A stranger came to town, and they took food, and they ate, and they went on a journey. And the disciples on the road do something that is off script for the two plots of all humanity. They reverse their journey. They've arrived at their destination, but suddenly they are compelled to go back again to Jerusalem where they came from, back to the city that once held grief for them. Who does that? Who gets to their destination and immediately turns around and goes back again? They do. They head out on that same road, even though it's night. The road that had taken them from Jerusalem to Emmaus now is the road from Emmaus to Jerusalem. The last time they traveled this road to Jerusalem, they hoped on Palm Sunday it would be a victorious road for Jesus. Instead, it turned out to be a traffic circle that whirled them around and spit them back out going the other way. 
here they are on the road again. And it turns out there's only one road. Exiled from Eden, they wander outside the gates, but now they're turned back to the promised land on the same road. We are all on this road together. The road out of Eden, the road back to Jerusalem, there and back again, there's only one road. Whether you're trudging away in exile or completing the circle back to the promised land, this is one busy road. All of us are on it together. I can hardly say the word Emmaus without it bringing to mind um, a retreat that in my tradition and my own family has been life-changing called the Walk to Emmaus. And in that retreat, um, you just tell people you're going on the Walk to Emmaus. You don't tell them much more. And there's a lot of sitting and listening and eating, but often people ask, do I need to bring my running shoes? They wonder if you're actually going to walk during the weekend, but really you just sit and listen and receive and worship. And the place um, in Houston where I went on many of those and helped other people who were pilgrims on that journey was not a quiet retreat center. It, it was at one time, but the city had kind of grown up around it, and now it was right on Interstate 10, I-10, that stretches the country across, and in Houston is quite a road. And so when you're eating and sleeping and listening and all day long, you hear the whir of traffic going by on a huge freeway right outside this retreat center. I kind of think the road to Emmaus is like that. It's filled with a lot of traffic, people going both directions. This is a busy road that we're all on together, eating whatever the strangers hand us and recounting our little stories and trying to find where they fit in in the story of God. You and I were all on this road, passing each other, some of us headed away, trudging in shame, and others' eyes newly opened, running back towards God. All of humanity is headed somewhere on this road, and so is Jesus. And in this story, what is he doing going the wrong way? Why is Jesus himself headed away from Jerusalem, walking with those who are downcast in grief? He's on that road because that's where his children are. And instead of waiting passively in Jerusalem for them to figure it out and get back on their own, Jesus chases them down to tell them the story. He goes a step above the father who sought his own prodigal child. When that child turned and came down the road toward them, the father met him on the road, but Jesus doesn't even wait for us to turn around. He is out chasing us, meeting us, listening to our stories, telling us again, I was there. I was there. I was there with you, and I am with you now. Friends, do you know anybody that's headed the wrong direction on this road? Go after them. That's what Jesus did. Our God didn't even wait for us to return or wander back. His prevenient love preempted even our change of heart. There are only two narratives to tell, two plots in all of history. Luke somehow wraps them up as one. Someone went on a journey, and a stranger chased them down and walked with them 
until they turned around and journeyed the other way. This is a story that I never get tired of. You are on the road with each other and with strangers. And when you meet someone on the road, the greeting, the only greeting is this. Come and join me at the table. Break bread again. Maybe our eyes will be opened. And maybe our hearts will burn within us again. Let's pray. God, thank you for meeting us on this road. We confess that we have turned away and gone the wrong direction. This morning, we put down our road map and follow your plan. We return to you, running to your marvelous light. And we pray that you would meet us here, right where we are, that you would chase us down in our grief and in our joy, in our own agendas, Lord. Help us to turn and follow you to Jerusalem. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.